This is the Bitcoin and Markets podcast. My name is Ansel Lindner, and I'm keeping you ahead of the curve in Bitcoin. Hello, Bitcoiners. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are doing part three of my case for deflation. It was going to be on liquidity and the repo market. I think I'm going to save that for part four because I went into some questions from Discord and Twitter, and my explanations went a little bit long. So um, we're going to do part four on liquidity and repo, the base layer of the euro dollar system. Uh, And this one is going to be question and answer time. Of course, I have to preface this up front. I'm not 100% expert on this by any means. Um, I have been learning about this now for a little while. I have background as an Austrian and uh, I have a degree in economics. So I have some background in currency and money and history, uh, but this uh, euro dollar thing is fairly new for me. Uh, I discovered it a couple years ago and I've been diving in deep. So it connected a ton of dots for me. And so I think it will do the same for other people. Uh, Anyway, before I get into all that, this is a listener-supported podcast. Go to patreon.com forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Help me continue to produce content. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month or become a full tribe member for $5. Another housekeeping item. It's also come to my attention that some people might think that this is anti- Austrian or anti-business cycle. This is just the business cycle. Um, I think it's greater than that uh, and maybe complementary. I'm hoping that it's complementary. So I understand that it's similar, but uh, I think it is uh, a different beast all on its own. So that's why I'm concentrating so much on it because this ends in deflation is what I'm saying. The deflation is the predominant force. That we're living in right now. <laughs> Some people have uh, also misconstrued what I'm saying here is that I don't believe in inflation. Well, I'm not saying that. Uh, inflation definitely exists. We definitely have money printing right now, um, but we need to be precise about definitions. That's why I started part one with a definition of inflation as an expansion or increase in the money supply. So, inflation and money printing are not synonyms. They are not the same thing. Just like inflation and price increases are not the same thing. Inflation and printing are not the same thing. So you can have um, money printing going on, but the overall quantity of money is still decreasing. See, and that's what I think we're in. We're in a money printing era, but the overall quantity of money is still decreasing faster than it's being printed. And not every second of every day. So some days there might be a a net gain in the quantity of money or some week. And we can see that on some charts. Uh, But overall, over the long term of this global monetary system that we have right now, uh, deflation predominates. Also, inflation, we know, well, inflation has ill effects. Yes, there's moral hazard, there's malinvestment, there's all of these other things. Um, And also a characteristic of inflation is it doesn't go through the economy in a consistent manner. So we don't have a general rise in prices. We have uh, prices going up in one section of the economy and prices stagnating or going down in other parts of the economy. Now, I'll argue the same works in deflation. So deflation isn't a general decrease in prices. 
it is an inconsistent decrease in prices. And you can see some prices going down while other prices are going up at the same time that you have a, the quantity of money is shrinking. So it's very hard to tease out here. We have to go back to first principles and say, this is debt-based money. It works differently than fiat money or even commodity money. Okay, so I think I covered that part. Uh, deflation plus money printing, because you can have the same. You can have those at the same time. Uh, equal stagnation. Stagnation leads to monetary reform. Oh, and I wanted to point out here that uh, if we point just to stocks, I mean, stocks and bonds and, and some other things, they have complex forces upon them. Like I was saying, we can see prices for uh, bonds going up. So that means yields going down because of a need for collateral. So the demand is shifting. It is not necessarily due to money printing. Okay. It's a demand. And yes, that demand exists in the same system that money printing exists, but we have to be able to tease out the different demand drivers here. Just because stocks and bonds are going up in value does not mean we have inflation. It can still be deflation that's shifting demand around in the economy and causing prices to fluctuate, just like inflation can cause prices to fluctuate. So if you point to stocks or you point to bonds, you're, you're, not, you're doing a disservice to your argument because, of course, there can be fluctuations there and complex forces. Okay, let's get into the listener questions. And sorry for that background noise. Uh, I am the father of four, and they're, it's Saturday, and they're playing out there. Please excuse the background noise. So the first one is from Epistemic Crisis on Discord. So he asks, I'd love for you to focus more on how dollars are getting made outside of the purview of the Federal Reserve. Well, okay. Um, I... Realize I haven't done a great job of describing this euro dollar system and the history of it, so I will try to do that now. It all started, you know, Bretton Woods started in '44, and the euro dollar system started about 10 years after that or so. So there was all of these dollar reserves around the world because the U.S. dollar was the global reserve currency backed by gold, and everyone else was pegged, or the major currencies were pegged to the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar pegged to gold. Other major currencies paid to the U.S. dollar, and dollars took the place of gold in many countries' reserves after World War II. Also, the U.S. dollar was the currency of international trade and settlement. There was a lot of dollars outside of the United States by the mid-50s and into the 60s. Now, the foreign countries, European countries, uh, they wanted to expand their money supply because that's what everybody wants to do. They think they want to print money and get growth from that. Um, but they couldn't. Their hands were tied by this peg because if they unilaterally printed money, then they would have a hard time or they couldn't keep their peg to the dollar. So they had to come up with a roundabout way to be able to print money. So what they did was they said, hey, we have all these dollars in our uh, national reserves and reserves at major European banks because they do business with settlement in in dollars. How about we just make dollar denominated loans based off those dollars? There was enough dollars out there in the system to repay that. 
especially with exporters in Europe. So you'd have exporters in Europe that were receiving dollars and they could pay off their dollar-denominated loans. And it slowly grew. It started very small, obviously, uh, but it grew quickly and it was unrestricted. There was no reserve ratio and they were able to piggyback off the strength of the United States and the strength of the dollar. Or maybe not the strength is the right word, but stability. That grew and grew and grew. And by, by 1985, there's some estimates that the euro dollar market was already over uh, like $1.2 trillion. This entire euro dollar system and trillions in the 80s, you know, was quite a bit. Roughly the same as the U.S. debt at that time. Now in the 90s, it really picked up. The euro dollar system really picked up. And uh, we see that with the boom that happened, the 90s boom and into the dot-com bubble, uh, any chart you look at, that was an exceptional time in history. And so that's when the euro dollar market really, really, I think, had its biggest growth. Um, and then, uh, of course, it's morphed a few times. But since 2008, something has changed um, and it doesn't function as it once did. It doesn't function as well as it once did. So that's kind of why we see we just see a breakdown in this euro dollar market. Maybe it's due to bad collateral. Maybe it's due to excess debt or, you know, we, we just, we don't know exactly why. Uh, there's a lot of good um, suspicions that we have, but we don't know exactly why. All right. So that is a brief, brief history of the euro dollar market. I hope that made sense and how it gets started. Um, really, the way their dollars are created, to directly answer your question, Alex, the way dollars are created is the same way dollars are created here. Dollars are just uh, lent into existence. So that's how it's printed outside the United States. And this is not counted on the Federal Reserve balance sheet or any sort of M2 or M3. You know, this is, uh, this is pure shadow bank. Nobody knows the entire size of it right now. You can estimate it. In 1985, those estimations were from J.P. Morgan, so they are inside the system, and they were making an estimate. But I haven't seen anything like that in recent years, okay? If I do run across something, then of course I will update you guys. Um, that is the answer to your question. Next question, Zan on Discord as well. Thanks for the question. What I'm wondering is how a deflationary period will impact Main Street. It will probably lead to less production, but at the same time, governments will likely imp implement UBI, meaning more money chasing less goods, which leads to inflation or probably increasing in prices. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not sure about this because, there's, like I said, there's so many competing forces out there. Um, overall, the money supply is contracting when we have deflation ruse the day large expenses for Main Street will go down. So like housing, gas, uh, what else? Any sort of transportation that you have, cars and, and stuff, uh, all those prices will go down. Of course, there will be a big shock right at the beginning where people can't service their existing debt. But overall, I think prices of big items will go down. But some consumer prices will you'll see a vast increase in price. Again, there's a complex way that prices react to inflation or deflation. And we can't say outright that 
it's going to get more expensive for Main Street. Um, it probably will to some degree. It will change. It will definitely change. Um, one thing I've noticed, and you guys might be the same as, as this, is over the last 20 years, uh, in my adult life, I've felt like this is just a materialist culture. Okay, And even though I really liked the American freedom culture, um, there's lots of materialism built in there. There's lots of plastic crap toys for kids. You know, there's fast food, fast toys, fast uh, entertainment. And that's that's corrupted our culture a lot. And it's caused bad effects in society. Of course, this is due to money printing and inflation and deflation. But uh, overall, I, I think we will see a reduction in that. So we'll see a reduction in cheap toys. We'll see a reduction in cheap food. We'll see a reduction in some of these other things, but you know, I never ate. I never ate fast food, so the decline of fast food industry isn't going to affect me. It's not going to affect my budget <laughs> because I don't eat there. But uh, it could affect a lot of people if they are used to getting a ninety-nine cent Big Mac or what. I don't even know what the prices are. Then um, you know they might have to replace that with a two-dollar sandwich or something, and that is going to be an increase in prices for them. But for uh, many people, it won't be. So with the supply chains moving away from China, probably lots of jobs and other things coming back to the United States, production coming back here, we will see prices increase. Um, so that will be kind of like inflationary. But it's for a different reason, right? <laughs> like it's, it, it, The prices would increase even if the money supply was steady. You know, So if we were a bit in, in a Bitcoin world and we had rock-solid fixed supply and then you brought the manufacturing supply lines back to america then you would still see an increase in prices so it's not due to inflation see it's due to many other aspects um yeah and last thing i'll say here you asked you mentioned upi uh don't forget you uh, upi <laughs> ubi don't forget ubi is financed through debt they can't they they always sell treasuries to pay for things. They don't just conjure money out of thin air with zero debt attached. So uh UBI in the grand scheme, it doesn't increase the money supply. Okay. His he has a second part. Couldn't the government offset the debt destruction with fiat money creation and by that method the impact to Main Street would be minimal? Again, yeah, I kind of answered that just a second ago. Um no, the system is not set up that way. In you know modern banking, we have balance sheets. So even the Fed when they do QE, <clears throat> even the Fed when they do QE, they create the money, they buy the treasury, right? They give that money to the bank that the primary dealer that they buy it from, but that money sits on the liability side of their balance sheet as reserves at the Fed. So they have an asset in the the treasury, but they also have an offsetting liability that they created. See, there's a balance to the way this system is constructed. So for the government to offset this debt destruction by uh, fiat money creation, uh, I guess they, they could technically do it, but our system isn't set up that way. When they spend money, they have an offsetting liability. So they're within the system. 
uh, in my, my definition of fiat is money without a corresponding debt. And it's hard to grasp that. That's the MMT mindfuck that they do. Our system isn't set up for that. How would we even account for that? How would we even know? Okay, that's what I have to say about that. Next one is from Crypto Gamer on Twitter. Thanks for the question. Great explanation, Ansel, and good to get into, considering a lot of Bitcoiners are on about the Burr meme. It'd be cool if you could also give your thoughts on how stagflation might fit into this opposed to inflation or deflation. Um, good question. I'm a fan of the Burr meme. I think it's good. It's not very accurate, but it's good. I mean, there is money printing going on, but that doesn't lead to inflation. It's not the same thing. It's <laughs> Rising prices isn't inflation necessarily, and neither is money printing. Uh, but it's good to get people into this thought process. They will learn about sound money. They will look in deeper into this thing, and they'll find probably Bitcoin. And uh, I mean, it doesn't matter why they buy Bitcoin. I just want people to buy Bitcoin, not necessarily to make my bags go up. It would, but uh, because it's good for them and it's good for society. It's good for my kids if all these people buy, not because my wealth will go up, but because society will get better. <laughs> so yes, uh, I like the Burmese for that reason. As for stagflation, um, like I said, I've only been looking in this Euro dollar thing for a couple of years and so I haven't really gone back and studied the 70s era stagflation as it pertains to this euro dollar system. Uh, but if we look at Japan, right, Japan doesn't have stagflation. Japan has just stagnation. And that's what I think we're going into. So I don't see, I see a Japanification. I don't see a stagflationary time but a lot of people that i respect that i've listened to over the years um that are familiar with this euro dollar situation they are on the stagflation bandwagon so they know better than i do uh, go to those people and see what they're saying but as far as i can tell you know malinvestments and this capital structure will um just it will create an era of deflation before stagflation so uh, you'll have a crisis before you have inflation, and that crisis will be deflationary. We'll see. We'll see how this goes, but that, that's what I would I would err on that side. Um, if people are saying that there's two years until stagflation, we'll have two-year period of deflation, and then we'll have stagflation or inflation. I know Mike Maloney is big on the deflation and then inflation. You got to ask him, like, what stops it from just de <laughs> deflating again? So yeah, of course we have these big swings and the global economy is so big and still slow. I mean, we're used to fast stuff, fast news cycle, you know, the inflation is going to pick up in a week. No, it, it takes a long time for things to work their way through the economy. And you might see uh, an era of five years of inflation, but then you have <laughs> one year of deflation that takes it all back away, right? In a crisis. So yeah, we might have some periods of stagflation or inflation, but again, deflation predominates. All right, so Colin Harper. Uh, I was on the Bitcoin Magazine WTF podcast. Really good. Uh, Colin and Christian are doing that show over there. Um, 
It was really fun. It's a couple days ago. I'll put a link to that down in the show notes. Uh, but he had a question on there that I just want to reiterate here uh, because I think a lot of people might have uh, a trouble with this. So he is he asked just, how is the U.S. dollar not fiat? Because everybody, I mean, yes, I've said for many years as well that the U.S. dollar is fiat, and it is <laughs> in, a, in a way. Is a, fiat technically would be not convertible, right? Not convertible to the base money, which would be uh, gold or silver, right? That that's fiat, and and also backed by a de- decree of legal tender. I I get that, but in my mind, debt based money, it, it's convertible into debt. <laughs> so my definition of fiat here is a little bit different. I I understand that it's just money that is not based off a of corresponding debt. It's strictly conjured. It's just something that you have to go over in your head multiple times. Um, it's the idea behind MMT. So once you start studying MMT and they say, you know, the government can just print the money without debt is your printed money and you have to use it for legal tender and it's collected again with taxes. So uh, that is the MMT framework and that is what I would consider pure fiat. If there's a debt that is associated, that debt can be securitized. It can be sold off. The dollar is the thing that it's convertible into because the dollar is debt itself. It's like if you have gold coins and you say that gold coin is not convertible into anything. Well, yeah, because it's, it is the gold, right? So this debt is the debt itself. Also on this is that the dollar system is much, much bigger than the United States. So I was just looking at the Fed's monetary base chart on the FRED database. And what was it? Uh, $4 trillion or something right now. Well, that is just the Federal Reserve monetary base. That's not the dollar monetary base. The dollar system is much, much larger than just the United States. Overall, I don't. We don't know the exact size, but the U.S. GDP is twenty percent of the world. So the the euro dollar market, which is upwards of ninety percent of all international settlement, is it's a uh, four times bigger outside the United States than it is inside, and that is a pure anarchic system. The euro dollar system does not have a regulatory body; it's just companies hedge funds, banks, there's some sovereigns in there, and they're all trading. So the the larger dollar, the global dollar standard, is not fiat. So I hope I did a good job explaining that. And that's going to wrap it up for this episode, part three. In part four, I'm going to go into the liquidity and repo markets, talk about collateral uh, and other things that happen on the base layer of this dollar standard system, uh, the euro dollar system. So, all right, guys, thanks for listening. Don't forget, listener support podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Bitcoin and markets. Also on my website, bitcoinandmarkets.com, I've been posting a lot of blog posts with commentary. Um, I have where you can sign up for my free weekly newsletter as well. So go on over there and sign up for that. All right, thanks, guys. See you next time.